Would you turn to John chapter 6? John chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There's one in front of you. We invite you to turn toward the New Testament and find John chapter 6. We're going to be there here in just a moment. So as you're turning, I want you to imagine a world before GPS. So imagine that's not so difficult for about yay, but about yay, except for Mr. Kemper, sorry brother, this might be difficult to imagine, a world without GPS. So let me just help you understand, okay? Because I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember calling my buddy for directions. And if you were taking road trips like Pastor Bud and Robin would, then you didn't have a phone or even the Garmin thing. You had a what? A Mapsco. I'm pretty sure Pastor Bud still has a Mapsco. And so you didn't have the magic blue dot that travels along with you with Google Maps or what have you. You had your finger following along. And if you were headed the right direction, you would come upon this. These road signs. Y'all see this? Many of you may have been at this intersection. For, our, for those who are struggling to read it, it has San Antonio that direction and Fort Worth, Dallas that direction. You had a road sign pointing you where you were to be, where you were to go. Now, if you were still headed in the right direction, periodically you would have these reminders that tell you that Dallas is 200 miles away or whatever. But I want to ask you, how many of you recognize this sign? What is this sign? Bucky's. For the uninitiated, Bucky's is the greatest gas station slash store slash restrooms this side of the Mississippi. And the funny thing about Bucky's is, if you are within like a light year of it, it's going to have a sign that says like 567 miles to Bucky's. I'm not joking. I, I couldn't find a good picture of it. And then you'd see one that's like 246 miles to Bucky's. And the best, uh, there's one that says, I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. You have to pee it to believe it. Because they have the finest restrooms you've ever seen. And I'm at this point now in my life where when I see those mile markers, I'm like, yes, I'm so close to go and buy all these treats I didn't think I needed until I was there. But in a world before GPS, you had these mile markers, you had these road signs that would periodically orient you to the fact that you were headed in the right direction and on a journey toward your destination. In the season of Lent, which we are in at the moment, we're going to be looking in John's gospel. Because like the road signs, John gives us in his gospel seven signs or miracles, as well as seven statements that Jesus says, and they are the road markers pointing us toward one destination, and the destination is this, finding life in Jesus. In our Lenten journey, we are going to be looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus. Tonight, the first one is, I am the bread of life, says Jesus. We're going to take them a little bit out of order because it's going to take us all the way up to Easter 
where we're going to look at I am the resurrection and the life. But John places these strategically, periodically throughout his gospel to point us in the direction of Jesus. And he says so explicitly at the end of his gospel. Look at what he says in John chapter 20. He says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may what? Believe. Let's say it again. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the destination and the journey that he wants to take us on is that we, we, we would believe and find life in Jesus. He keeps pointing us because so often in our journey, we veer off the road. And what I mean by that is we veer off the road and we begin to try to find life in all of these other ways and with all of these other people and with all of these other things that are not Jesus. And the reason why in this Lenten journey, journey, which is a season of prayer and fasting and preparation, we're looking at these statements, is to reorient us and remind us that when we try to find life outside of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and what Jesus is calling us to do, we will find ourselves empty and unsatisfied and headed off a road that does not lead to life. And so tonight we're going to look at Jesus as the bread of life, that gives life to a hungry world. So if you're in John chapter 6, we're going to drop down to the meat of a very lengthy conversation set in a very loaded and important context that I hope to walk you through this evening. We're going to look at the first I am statement, and then we're going to ask two big questions as we wade through this really interesting and shocking and wild conversation of this long chapter in the middle of John's gospel. Let's pick it up in verse 25. We're going to read verses 25 to 35 to begin. You with me? When they found him on the other side of the lake, they being the crowds, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Then he says in verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So then they asked him, okay, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God 
is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. Jesus is the bread that gives life to a hungry world. Jesus is the bread that gives life to a hungry world. There is no shortage of hunger, both real and physical, and also real and spiritual. We are hardwired to be set down the road looking for something beyond ourselves, something to meet this need, something to scratch this itch, that really only Jesus himself can satisfy. What we just read in this conversation, I told you, was the meat. And it's taking place in a synagogue in Capernaum, which was Jesus' home base. Jesus had been all around this lake or this sea. And he's interacting with this crowd and he's trying to point them down the road to something bigger. And I think in this meat of the conversation, we find two crucial questions, and they're these. The first is, what does it mean to be fed by God? Did you notice that it kept circling back to this bread that God gives and that he fed our ancestors? Really, the first bit of this dialogue centers on, okay, what is God really giving us, this true bread? What does it mean to be fed by God? The second question then, and we're going to really drill down later on in the conversation, is what does it mean to feed on Jesus? Now, these are some weird questions, or is it just me? These are some weird questions. Brace yourself, it's going to be a weird sermon tonight, perhaps. Thankfully, Pastor Kathy preached last week, so, you know, just go and listen to that again. But these are mysterious questions, aren't they? What does it mean to be fed by God and to feed on Jesus? There's a whole chapter devoted to teasing this out. And this question is so crucial for us today because what's at stake is life and life eternal. What's at stake is being satisfied by true bread. Because like I said earlier, we always tend to veer off course and look elsewhere. So let's look at this first question. What does it mean to be fed by God? But before we get into the answer, I want to tell you the when of this conversation is so important. The context surrounding this conversation is so crucial. It's not on the screen, so if you have your Bible open, look at the very beginning of chapter 6, which is the headline and the orientation to everything that follows in this lengthy chapter. And he says this. Oh, it is on the screen. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. So thus far, Jesus' reputation has preceded him. He's been doing these signs that John has recorded, pointing to Jesus so that they believe in Jesus. And then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with the disciples. And what does verse 4 say? The Jewish Passover festival was 
near. Okay? This is crucial to understanding what happens next. Okay? But what is the Jewish Passover? Do you all remember this? I'll help you. If you look back in the second book of the Bible called the Exodus, this is the central historical act that really generates and reflects back the whole Old Testament that follows it. And y'all have seen the movie. Y'all have heard the story, if you don't remember it by name. It's when God decisively worked and rescued his enslaved people from oppressive Egypt. And he did it dramatically. Remember the plagues and all this stuff? And then he sent them through the sea. They crossed the sea into the wilderness. Then they wandered in the wilderness grumbling and fighting and getting some laws and trying to understand from the mountain who God was calling them to be. But you know what God did in the wilderness? He fed them. Does anyone know what he fed them? Manna. Manna, okay? So in the Exodus, God rescued his people through the sea, and he fed them in the wilderness. Now, John says everything that we just read is happening while they're in the synagogue reading this story because that Passover festival, when God passed over and saved the firstborn and rescued them from Egypt, they're reading this story, they're praying this story, and they're hoping that God would do it again. Because they're still oppressed, and they still need rescue. And so they go out to the wilderness, and Jesus, watch what he does. He crosses a sea with his 12 disciples, and he feeds a multitude of people in the wilderness. Do y'all remember when Dr. Kirtley Knight came and he preached the first half of John chapter 6, when he fed the multitude, then he gets in a boat, and the storm happens, Jesus hops in, and then what happens? They get to the other side across the sea. And what Kirtley said was, their eyes were open, and they said, whoa, Jesus does Moses stuff. You remember this? So this is vital for understanding what's happening when they start to talk about bread in the wilderness. Hello? So then, the Jews at this time believed as they were praying and soaking in and and understanding what, what is going on here, the Jews believed that there was a huge storehouse of manna. Imagine some big warehouse filled with that powdery, flour like manna stuff in heaven that God had up there waiting, and guess who had the keys? God's king and Messiah who would show up, unlock them things, and rain it down. He's going to make it rain. Hello? Manna. They are waiting and expecting that this king would unlock the doors, the bread would come down, and he would deliver them again from all the evil oppressors that are ruling over them. What God did then, they were waiting for God to do again. You with me so far? Hold on. It gets crazier. So what does John want us to see when Jesus steps into the wilderness, feeds a people, and crosses a sea? He wants us to see at each point in the Gospel of John that at each turn, whether it's the law, whether it's the exodus, whether it's the Sabbath, whether it's the temple, whether it's their expectations of what the Messiah King should be, Jesus reinterprets Israel's history 
their religion, and their hope. And then he reorients all of it around who? Himself. Now we're getting somewhere. Now you can begin to see why at the beginning of John chapter 6, the part we didn't read, they are so fired up about the bread that he fed them in the wilderness that they rushed to try to make him king. They tried to say, boom, this is the guy. He's making it rain. Let's make him king. You with me? So look back in John chapter 6, what we just read, verse 25. Look again. You don't have to have it on the screen. They go and find Jesus, and they say, there you are. We've been waiting for you. Where you been, dog? You're our king, man. Make it rain. Because this is what you have to understand about bread. Bread was the staple diet of the Mediterranean. And you couldn't just roll to Panera and get you some bread. You can just go to Walmart and get you some bread. Every day they would wake up, they would knead the dough, and they would bake bread, and they would eat bread. Every person from the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich ate bread. So to find someone who could just, here, from my kid's sack lunch, was a big deal. And so when they approach Jesus, what does Jesus say to them in verse 25 and 26? He says, hey, it ain't me you're looking for. You're here because you want some more of what I can do. And the question that he's beginning to raise, the thing he's trying to reinterpret and reorient is, are you after the giver or the gifts? And this is the question that begins to drill down to us in 2018. Is it the giver that I want or is it just the gift? Because when Jesus meets this crowd, after he refused to make, be made their vending machine, He's going to begin to challenge them and push them to see that they can make bread every day, all day, but they will continually be hungry until they're able to see Jesus for who he is and to receive from Jesus what only he can give, and that is eternal life by believing in him. Let me bring it back to reality. I remember there was a person that... I was meeting with on a regular basis. This was when I was connected to a different church. And he was in a really rough way, okay? And I had really nothing to give him except some time because we lived two very different experiences. He was raised in a difficult and broken family. He was uh, addicted and he was homeless. And so we were meeting and he was able to get into a halfway house. But he was praying for this job. He wanted a job at this store, in this position, doing that. But then, boom, he gets a place. And in this place, he doesn't have to pay rent. He gets food. But he says, yeah, dude, but I want this job. And then what happens is someone gifts him with a car. And he says, yeah, dude, but it'd be really nice because I ain't got nowhere to go because I want this job. And he's praying and praying and praying. And week after week after week, it's, I got to get this job. I got to get this job. And then guess what? This dude starts working at another job. And we're seeing like each step of the way, he's literally taking these baby steps into this kind of life to get back onto his feet, to get clean, and to learn how to follow Jesus. So he began to come to this church, and he was praying, and he was doing all these things, but he was still so stuck on not getting this one job. Because he had experienced this little taste of a lifestyle that he was so ready to taste again, immediately. And so what happened was we began to not see him 
week after week after week after week. We began to not see him in the worshiping community or in this recovery community. And when we finally saw him again, we said, man, what's going on? How are you doing? He says, dude, I am so fed up and done with church and I'm done with God. And we said, oh my goodness, why? And he says, because if God is as good as all these people say, why didn't he give me what? This job. And he's not the only one that I've spoken to. Have you met with someone? And maybe it wasn't a job. It was, if God would only this, then that. Or if I am this, then that. And what's at play here, what's at work here, is when we make the gifts or lack of the gifts, we make them God. We make them the sole destination to which our life is headed. We make them the foundation of our identity. And the problem is, when that gift goes, you know what else does? Everything else And I'm here to tell you that it doesn't just mean you hit rock bottom. It means that you come to a reality like I have at many points in my life. When I lose this one little thing that I just was holding all of my security and and really just wrapped up in, when it goes, what I really believe begins to surface. Do I really believe that God is enough? Do I really believe that God loves me? Because this didn't happen and that didn't happen and I prayed and I did everything that the pastor said and I showed up every morning and yet, what? It's not here. And it grieves me because I'm there. At different seasons in my life, I'm there. And maybe it's the even little subtle ways where things just get really hard and I begin to say, well, this is not what I signed up for. And it's in those moments of kindness where I want Jesus to come and remind me and say, but look, man, I've been there. No one said it's going to be easy. And so we have this first exodus of people walking in the wilderness, looking around and saying, whoa, hey, thanks a lot for saving us, God. We're in the desert. This is happening. That's basically like exodus, like six chapters right there in six words. Thanks a lot. Wish we were back in Egypt. But here's why God gave his people the manna. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. This is way back before Jesus is having this conversation. Why? To teach you that what? You've heard this before. Man does not live on what? Bread alone, but on what? Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. These words were spoken from Jesus when he was tempted to have all the gifts. You can have it all. It's right here. Load up the bank account. Load up the acolytes and those bowing down in reverence. Give it everything. It is Christmas times infinity. Here's all the gifts. And Jesus says... Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus is pointing and living the example of what it looks like to be fed beyond the gifts by the giver. Now, understand the gifts that God gives us are good things. Did God give the people the manna? Yes. But he gave it to them so that they would be grateful, that they would be sustained, but they would look beyond the gifts toward the giver. 
But the problem is when we elevate the good in place of the best or in place of God. So then Jesus says in verse 27, stop working and striving and toiling for what will not ultimately satisfy you. It may sustain you, but it won't satisfy you because you were made for more. My grandfather is here. When I was about three or four years old, he doesn't know I'm going to say this, but my family bears witness to this, and I have memories of my grandfather taking me through a good many drive throughs And what my grandfather would do is he would take us through Wendy's for their burgers, but then McDonald's for their fries because he is a man of taste. And what would happen is <laughs> they were next door to each other in this one in South Garland, so it was okay. But what would happen is they say, three-year-old Adam, what do you want? And I would say, croutons. Do you remember this phase? I want croutons and ketchup. And for three years, if I had my way, I would subsist on nothing but croutons and ketchup. Now, you might know where I'm headed here. Was a three-year-old body made to be sustained by croutons and ketchup? No, is a 13-year-old body made to be sustained by Takis or Mountain Dew or whatever I've seen you guys eat in mass right across the street at Jason and Becky's house? I have seen, man, let me tell you, students do not live on Sour Patch Kids alone. Every youth event, lock-in or whatever, they go through a four-pound bag of Sour Patch Kids in one night. I'm looking at you, Ann. Man. But the bigger point that I'm trying to make is we are made for more than even the bread that is good and sustains us. What happens when it's money or sex or affirmation, fill in the blank, when these good things that God has given to us become ultimate things and we find our life in this bread, we are working and eating the wrong kind of bread and Jesus offers us a different way. He says, don't work for the bread that will spoil. Instead, work for the bread that gives and endures to eternal life. So then they said, okay, what should I do to work for this bread? Vital question, isn't it? And he says, the work that God requires is this, to believe in the one he has sent. I want to kind of take a pause here. For some reason this week, I can't shake this. I think that one of the things that happens in our lives is when we take the good things that God gives to us um, and we begin to make them ultimate things or we begin to settle for the croutons and we begin to push Jesus and believing that his way and who he is is best, when we begin to push him to the side, I see all kinds of hell on earth begin to enter in into our hearts and out into our lives. And for some reason, I just want to speak, because I don't talk about this a whole lot, but I've been thinking about our sexuality as one example. And what I mean is because we've had a lot of conversations around, but not really explicitly here, and know that this is one example of the many, but I want to just speak to even our students 
that there are images and there are relationships that are half-baked. There are images and there are relationships that look appetizing, but they are destructive. And there are invitations from within this community for students as well as adults that seem like they're life-giving. But the reality is, from your friends or from others, they are not life-giving. And the problem with these images and the problem of these relationships that are just shells of what Jesus has offered us when this robust idea of God's ideal for sexuality and the boundaries of a loving married relationship, what happens is when we begin to pick that apart and to eat on these croutons, we begin to see we weren't made for this kind of thing. And the problem with these images and relationships that are shadows of what God offers, and hear me please on this, and I'm trying to speak delicately. The problem is not that they show too much. You hear me? The problem is they don't show enough. Here's what I mean by that. Whether you're seeking them or someone's asking you for these kinds of images or this kind of relationship that's outside of God's ideal, they're not showing you enough. They're not showing you what it looks like to love the way that Jesus loves. They're not showing you what it looks like to nurture intimacy and a relationship with another person. And so when Jesus says, quit working for these things that won't satisfy you, how it looks in that context is Jesus has given us a blueprint and an ideal that he wants us to flourish and to see if someday we might be married, that we can flourish in this relationship that God designed. And it is much more than any of these shadows could ever do. You were made not for croutons, but for bread that is good and God's blessing that he wants to give to you. Don't short circuit it. And don't be invited into seeing these things, participating in these things that will lead only to more sickness and not the health and the life that God has given to you. And let me tell you, It's not the way of high school. It's not the way of the world. Adults, it's not the way of the world. Singles, it's not the way of the world. But the bread and the way of Jesus, the destination is for our life and our good. And what does it mean to be fed by God? It's to come to him first with these places of need that God has given to us and to see how he might meet us in those spaces. So the answer to our first question that I hope we've seen a little bit and what Jesus begins to point us to in this conversation is to look beyond the gifts and to the giver. And the gifts that God gives us sustain us, but only he can satisfy us. And what does it look like for you to go to him with your places of need first? Sid Holsclaw came down and did an excellent marriage retreat for us in September. And she talked about paying attention and being aware of those needs and those hungers. Because conflict so often happens when expectations are unsaid or unmet. Have we borne this out in our relationships or am I the only one that has a lot of expectations I've not said and that I've not met? And she said, what would it look like to go to Jesus first and say, here is this hunger, here is this place of need And what would it look like for him to meet you in that place? Not in shame, but to say, I see you, I'm with you in this, I've experienced this. And I'm not just talking to marriage. What Sid said is so perfect for us and and those of us who are single. 
What does it look like for Jesus to meet us in those places? And what does it look like for us as a community to rally around and say, you know, I hear you. I hear Jesus in this too. So let's help together and let's see what it looks like to love and to help meet each other's needs in the name of Jesus. But to go to Jesus first, people second. What would it look like for us this week? Man, there's these hungers. And the thing about Lent is it is a season of growling stomachs because it reminds you that man does not live on bread alone and it reminds you to say no to some things in order that you would see your hunger met in a bigger yes to God. Alan Fadling, uh, who is uh, blogging and writing some books, uh, he sends out a newsletter for his ministry, Unhurried Living. We did a retreat with him a while back too. So I guess this is, if you've done a retreat or preached here, I'm just going to quote you tonight. Uh, But Alan said this this week as Lent began on Wednesday. He says this. I'm going to need to turn around. What we say no to in Lent is not about missing out on something good. It's really about opening up space to remember what is truly and more deeply good. I could choose some form of fasting for Lent. I could decide to fast a certain day or two each week. I would do this not to prove something about my heroic spirituality or self-discipline. I would do this to learn the wisdom of Jesus. I do not live mainly by the bread I eat. I live mainly because of my communion with God. The absence of bread has a way of highlighting the presence of God. Look at this. The no we say in Lent makes room for a bigger yes to God along the way. I hope some of you are tracking with us in our Lenten journey as we read the scriptures together. There are bookmarks up here. It's not too late. You can buy N.T. Wright's book. But the idea, if you're putting on the reading or you're putting off those hungers that distract you from the true bread from heaven, the idea is that it reminds us that we were not made for croutons or the bread that spoils alone. We were made to say yes to him. And so we're moving on to the second crucial question now. Okay, how do we feed on Jesus? If that's how we're fed by God in those spaces of looking beyond the gifts to a giver, Jesus is going to shift the conversation and really drill down the point to say, let me tell you what the true bread is. And he's going to say, it's me and you need to eat my flesh. So let me do a quick reader's theater through verses 28 on. The crowd says, okay, if the work is to believe in you and be met by you, what do we work for to get this kind of life you said? Okay? Then verse 29, Jesus says, believe in the one he sent. You with me? Then the crowd say, okay, I'll believe in the one he sent. I mean, if God sent him, that's cool. I'll believe. But then they say, so what sign are you going to do to show us that we need to believe in you? And this is hilarious because this dude just fed 5,000 of them and had leftovers. They said, okay. What sign are you going to do so that we can believe in you? Because they said back in the day, you remember he rained down bread, not just from a kid's sack lunch, but from heaven. 
So remember, our ancestors got fed by Moses in the wilderness. And Jesus says, well, not quite. Moses didn't give the bread. God gave the bread. And God gives true bread from heaven that gives life to the world. So then the crowd says, that sounds awesome. That sounds better than the Olive Garden breadsticks. Give us this bread all day, every day. Did you see that? They said, always give us this bread. And then here's where it drills down. I am the bread of life. I am the true bread that came from heaven. The bread is a person. And if the work of God to get life is to believe in the one he sent, Jesus says, you're looking at him. And then he says, whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. So as we keep going back to the well of the water that we've all talked about 20 minutes ago, uh, whether it's greed or sexuality or all the things that we need to find our life to, it will continue to leave us wanting more. And Jesus says, but if you would come to me, you won't go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never go thirsty. Because the problem with every crouton or bread or whatever illustration we've been talking to, it will never be enough in this life And it will not be enough to get us through to the next life. So Jesus is offering them eternal life, which isn't just somewhere out there someday, glory, hallelujah. But it is the kind of life that meets you right here today. To participate in God's kingdom come so that when all the gifts that we talked about disappear, you still have God's kingdom right now. You're living in it. He's with you even amongst the storm and the suffering. Because the thing about the storms is this. The storm, like these disciples experienced on the lake, was not the time to say, what do I believe about Jesus after all? The storm is too late for that. The storm is what reveals what you really believe. The storm is where the lead really gets out And what you believe about God and how he's with you and how he satisfies you really comes out. And if it's rough around the edges, that's okay. Because you know what the storm also does? It refines your beliefs. And then you begin to see like God's people did in the Exodus. And Jesus' disciples did when they saw him go to the cross. Oh yeah, it may not look like everything I wanted all the time. It may not look like the kind of king who just gives me Panera and fish. What the storms do when things get really difficult is reveals and refines what we really believe about Jesus. So Jesus says to get on board with eternal life is to make certain right now that you can find yourself rooted in me. Because if you stick with me, and this is where the rest of the conversation begins to go. It says if you stick with me, I'm God's king and I will raise you up with me on the last day. So even if the suffering takes your life, the seventh I am statement is I am the resurrection and the life. And this is the hope, but it comes at this cost and it's this strange and mystical way of consuming and believing in Jesus as the bread of life. You see on the screen how Jesus moves from the obvious 
Bread is the everyday staple like we talked about. To the symbolic bread as God's heavenly gift that he feeds us. To the straight up mystical bread as a person to be eaten. If you look through the rest, and we can highlight verses 47 on. Read with me. He says, truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and guess what? They died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then they said, wait. The Jews who could never eat flesh, they could never drink blood, they could never in a million years imagine being a religious cannibal, asked the question we should be asking right now. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, this nut? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. What does it mean, this shocking thing to feed on Jesus? Our second crucial question. I believe what Jesus is getting after here is believing in such a way that's taken root. It's like being consumed into your life. Here's what I mean by that. This week, like so many in our community, my oldest daughter, Emma, was sick with the flu, and she hated her flu medicine. And she was such a trooper and took it because we kept insisting that it will do her no good until she takes it into her body. You can listen and hear sermons about bread all day, but no one will have a relationship with Jesus for you. It is believing in such a way that says, I don't understand all the things you're saying, but there is something about you I get, and I want to root my whole life in and around who you are. And here's the second point. Believing in such a way that finds life in Jesus' flesh and blood given in sacrifice for the world. Jesus was not talking about religious cannibalism. He was talking about how in a matter of months or years, he's going to give his own body and his own blood to rescue these people in the kind of exodus they never imagined. This is the message and why it's so crucial. John keeps saying, look, 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 look. The eternal life comes not by killing people, but by being killed. And he gives his life for us that we may look to the cross, kneel down and say, what else do I got? But we keep going to try to earn it and work it and find it. He says, no, 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 I, I, I did all that. And ultimately this third point, It's believing in such a way that keeps coming to the table with open hands toward the only one who satisfies. It's saying, you're enough, and I struggle to believe it, and I struggle because I want to earn it, but I want to keep showing up at the table, and here's what I want to end with. Because, man, this is some mystical and wild stuff, and I want so badly to give you the step-by-step guide, but I think the only thing that we can give you is an invitation to come to the table with Jesus and know that you're welcome and come with open hands. 
Because in this church, we are all beggars showing you where the bread is. And we say, you're welcome to come, but we can't have a relationship with Jesus for you. But would you look to him? Would you sit at the table with him? And the reason we take communion and the reason we hear about him and the reason we serve in his name like we did today to these 20 plus 30 people is because we believe that if we stay here, he can move and work and transform us. Because what we see so often in our community is what happened to the crowd after Jesus said something like this. They said, this is hard. Who on earth can get on board with this? I loved it when he was giving us all this awesome stuff. And I can't get on board when he asks me to do something like this. And it said, many turned away and followed him no more. And we know too many people that have turned away and are not following him. And I'll end with this. Jesus then turns to his 12 after this lengthy conversation and says, what about you guys? You do not want to leave too, do you? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. The disciples did not understand everything, but they got that Jesus was where the life is, that Jesus is where the satisfaction is, and may we follow suit and find enough strength and satisfaction for the journey And may we invite others to the table with open hands to the bread who gives life to a hungry world. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the bread that came down not just centuries ago at the Exodus, but the word become flesh, Jesus Christ, given for the world in peace, given for the world to reconcile and renew our brokenness and to release us from all the ways we find to destroy ourselves. We pray, Lord, that we would come to the table and eat and drink deeply of all that Jesus is and all he gives. We ask this in his name, the bread of life. Amen. Fill to the brim with the goodness of God, the nourishment of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. In the power of the Holy Spirit, go now in peace to serve God in all that you think, do, and say. God's peace will always be with you. Amen. Go in peace.